Welcome to CAI's podcast. My name is Michael Shaw. I'm the Manager for Communications and Programs with the Pennsylvania and Delaware Valley Chapter of Community Associations Institute. We're here today with Angela Costigan Esquire. Angela is a partner with Costigan and Costigan LLC with offices in Philadelphia, Morristown, New Jersey, and Hamilton, New Jersey. Their website is www.costiganllc.com. Angela received her Bachelor of Arts from the University of Pennsylvania and her JD from the University of Pittsburgh. Angela is here today to talk to us a little bit about directors and officers liability issues. Angela, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure to be here. So my first question is, uh, can you explain what we're talking about when we refer to DNO? Directors and officers' liability basically deals with the ethical issues that directors face every day and directors and officers I'm talking about on boards of trustees. Um, we're talking about breach of fiduciary duty and day-to-day operations of what I essentially call the business of running community associations. And for the most part, whenever we get into a DNO situation, we're talking liability insurance. Is the insurance carrier going to cover it? Um, is it not going to cover it? And how do we go forth? Okay. And what are some of the most frequently litigated directors and officers' liability issues? Well, I put them in categories of do's and don'ts. And I deal with basically five issues. The first is financial disclosures. The second is the establishment of architectural review boards. The third is the suspension of voting rights. The fourth is assessing fines and penalties. And the fifth is the careful calculation of resale certificates. And when we're dealing with these issues, what we first need to do is look at our governing documents. Whether it's a master deed or a declaration, we need to look carefully to see what it says about the governance of the association. And then we go from there. Along with that, we look at the bylaws which are covered within each master deed and or declaration. And then finally, we look at the rules and regulations. And once we go through each of these documents as carefully as possible, because they will tell us what to do. They will tell us how to do it, and they will give us a blueprint for the do's and don'ts of running the association. Also to keep in mind are the state statutes. Whether you're in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, you need to look at the um, Uniform Acts in Pennsylvania. You need to look at the condo law in New Jersey. Along with that, which is very important for DNO liability, are the business corporation laws. Almost all of the associations are nonprofit corporations. So they are essentially businesses. They are corporations. Nonprofit, which simply means for tax purposes, they file an S form, I think it is. But each um, state has nonprofit corporation specific laws. And so when we're looking at directors and officers' liability, what I first do is look at that law. And the nonprofit corporation law gives very, very specific do's and don'ts on how officers should act. Should they hold meetings within a certain period of time? What is their fiduciary duty and to whom? In conjunction with that, I would next go to the state statute and then determine what parts of the state statute are applicable to what the board is doing and specifically what the officers are doing within the board. And then finally, I'll go through the governing documents, which I know is time consuming. And I know that most 
officers and directors simply don't have the time to go through all this. So perhaps if you have a, a property manager, an attorney, even an engineer can help you out with some of these issues to look through some of these documents and statutes. Now, if we look at each one of these issues, going first to financial disclosures, the Business Corporation Acts the, um, will tell you what kinds of disclosures are necessary and what you need to disclose to each of your unit owners. For the most part, you need to disclose just about all of it. The unit owners are part of the association, they are part of the corporation, and therefore you treat them to the best of your abilities. You don't treat one over the other, you don't treat one better than the other. That's where a lot of people run afoul. So consistency is key. Absolutely, that is the key. Along with that is also communication. If there are two things, consistency and communication, those are the hallmarks of properly dispensing with your fiduciary duty. Okay. If someone asks for disclosures, there's a reason they're asking for disclosures. Either they don't want to pay the fees or they're concerned about how the board is spending money or they want to hire a professional to review them. So bring them into the office or have the property manager talk to them and ask them what their problem is. What are they looking for and why? And then determine what documents you can give them. And if you cannot give them a document, give them a reason. If you don't do that, you will end up with perhaps some kind of litigation on that which in my opinion is pretty much wasteful litigation because it's something that you can deal with in-house. Why involve the courts, which may or may not do what you want them to do when it's something you can take care of? Sure. So a great tip for managers or for board members is if they're not sure what they should be showing a homeowner, contact their attorney. Agreed. Okay, great. Um, the second issue is the establishment of architectural review boards. Associations, in particular the directors and officers within an association, are very particular about what you can and can't do with your unit. All of that's in the master documents. The master deed, the declaration, the bylaws, and more particularly in the rules and regs. A lot of what you can and can't do are contained in the rules and regs. So, can you paint your shutters green or yellow or purple? Maybe, maybe not. Can you put a porch out? Maybe, maybe not. But before you establish architectural guidelines, make sure you review what you can do and can't do. A board can't simply say to a homeowner, well, we don't want um, your stoop to be painted purple without a good reason. I mean, is purple offensive to one person? Perhaps. Is it fine for another person? Perhaps. But you gotta give them a good reason. You can't just say, we don't want you to do that. The third is, the suspension of voting rights, and this is a biggie. Along with that is the annual meeting. Every document, every governing document I have ever seen in my many years of doing this has a date for which you need to have a general meeting. Whether it's July, August, September, October, whatever. I mean, it spells it out explicitly. And if you don't have that meeting at that time, you have to tell the body why. Also, in conjunction with that, the nonprofit corporation law gives you do's and don'ts on how to conduct the meeting. It's very specific. You need an election person. You need to send out proxies if you're going to send out proxies within a period of time. You need to count them. You need to have someone impartial count them. You need to have a committee. It's very, very strict. And if you don't follow the strict guidelines, you may run afoul of both the Nonprofit Corporation Act and your governing documents. And I'm seeing more and more litigation in that aspect because either people make it on the board or they don't make it on the board or their friends are on the board or they hate people on the board. 
and then they're going to look for a way to strike the general meeting to strike the election. Okay. Suspension of voting rights. Generally speaking, you can suspend a union owner's voting rights if they don't pay their assessments or they're delinquent in some manner, they haven't done something you've asked them to do with reference to rules and regulations. But also, there are very specific guidelines as to how to do that. You can't just call them on the phone and say, well, John, you know, you haven't paid your assessment this month. You're not going to be able to vote. It just doesn't work that way. So in terms of record keeping or, or a paper trail for that, I assume that, that it's important that the manager or board members keep some sort of track of why they're suspending a voting right before they do it. Absolutely. And for the most part, they give them notices. John, you haven't paid your assessment in a month. Um, please do so. Okay, second notice. John, you haven't paid your assessment in two months. Please provide you know, a reason or please pay. Third month. John, you haven't paid your assessments in three months and now it's over you know, $2,000. Fourth month. I mean, there are guidelines in your governing documents. The Nonprofit Corporation Act also gives us guidelines. Okay, great. Thank you. The next is assessing fines and penalties. To backtrack a bit. You have to keep careful ledgers of how you're assessing fines and what penalties, if any, you are also assessing. If people pay you, now there's all kinds of software that the managers tell me they use, so it's not as big a deal as it used to be, but it is careful calculation. If you suspend someone, if you wrongfully assess a fine or a penalty that you should not have, the best thing would be to do is just tell them, you know, we made a mistake, people are human, we're allowed to make mistakes. What we're not allowed to do is perhaps suspend rights or somehow penalize someone on a mistake. That's where you run into a DNO liability situation where they didn't own up to their mistake. But like I said, we are all human. We all can make mistakes. Just okay. tell them. <laughs> Absolutely. And then finally, the careful calculation of resale certificates, which in Pennsylvania has become more and more of an issue. When you sell a unit, they require these resale certs. And so sometimes I see them a little bit haphazardly filled out because they're, they're in a rush and they need them, they can't close. But if at all possible, pay careful attention to what you're doing, how you're preparing the certificate, why you're preparing the certificate, and the amount is critical. I see sometimes if the amount is miscalculated, the closing doesn't go through, the people lose their sale on both ends. They lose the sale of the unit and then they can't buy their house. The title company gets involved, we're in a week or a month, and it's very, very confusing, and you don't want a loss of a sale at all. Um, but also, you don't want to miscalculate what you've put on the resale certificate. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how does the board avoid DNO claims? Lots of communication. People don't generally complain unless they have a reason. Of course, we will all run into situations where people basically had a, have a lot of time on their hands. <laughs> and that's a different story. But for the most part, people will give you notice. People will call board members. People will call the property manager. People will show up at meetings. People will send you letters. People will send you emails. People will shout at you at the pool. <laughs> sure, right. So when those people ask you questions, be as polite as possible. Avoid conflict. Uh, if it needs a longer meeting other than hello yes i'll take care of it then set up a meeting it's time consuming i know and board members are heroic in their efforts to try to accommodate everyone but set up a meeting with the property manager face to face how can i help you what can i do if that doesn't work perhaps you get your attorney involved but the worst thing you can do is ignore these people almost all the litigation i have is because people felt they were ignored 
I did this, I did that, nothing happened. And that's either because the board wasn't aware of what was going on. Sometimes the property managers try to handle it themselves and it doesn't work well. And so the board doesn't even know. Sometimes the board is involved, but the answers given were not satisfactory. Sometimes um, the paperwork wasn't, like I said, you know, the resale certs, they lose sales. Sometimes they feel disenfranchised. My neighbor got X, I got nothing. My neighbor got a, got a, uh, a, their walkway replaced, I did not. Those are the kinds of claims. But communication is the key to the avoidance of these particular claims. So whether it's communication from the manager to the board or the board to the homeowner or the homeowner to the manager, uh, whichever the case may be, uh, certainly communication is, is the most important part of trying to avoid a DNO claim. Correct. And the second most important part is also dispute resolution, which I think is the next issue. Yeah, actually, we, that was my next question for you. Is it possible to engage in uh, mediation or arbitration uh, to help resolve these issues without having to bring it uh, to court? Most certainly. And if you can do that, that is the most expeditious way to do it before it lands in court. If it appears that the issue cannot be resolved on a face-to-face -face meeting or several meetings, if necessary, then... Um, a lot of the governing documents not, now provide for ADR, which is alternate dispute resolution, especially the ones I see in New Jersey. They actually have to have it pursuant to uh, regulation, state regulation. So either you hire someone or CAI, I think, has committees, dispute resolution persons that can assist you, get one of those people in, have a meeting, have a formal mediation resolution process, and they work well. They work a lot better than spending two years in court. And if they don't work the first time, you can always call these people back and have a second meeting because okay. that may even work better because people go home, they think about it, mostly to our advantage, not disadvantage. Also, the mediator is an impartial person. You want to get an impartial person who has lots of experience in this area of the law. It's best to have someone who's, you know, been either an attorney or an engineer or a property manager or even a board member who's involved with these issues. They can sit down, they can look at the issues, they can talk to you about possible resolutions, many of which are not monetary, many of which are let's do this, let's do that, um, let's replace your cement. Can we replace your cement? Yeah, let's do it. For $200 a block, it's a lot cheaper than you paying an attorney later and spending two years in court. Um, on the other hand, if it really becomes clear that you cannot resolve it, sometimes there is no choice but to land in court. But my experience has been that's also very time consuming. Board members have to come to court, testify, give depositions, and it's more time consuming than trying to resolve issues in-house. It certainly sounds like uh, mediation and arbitration has at least the potential to save a lot of money, both in legal costs and insurance costs uh, and, and the cost of time. So it sounds like that's a great way to go. It is a great way to go, and I advocate it uh, anytime you can take advantage of it. It's a great tool. Well, thank you, Angela. I think uh, our, our listeners are going to get a lot out of what you had to tell us, and we really appreciate, again, you joining us for this edition of CAI's podcast. Again, I've been speaking with Angela Costigan Esquire. She's a partner with Costigan and Costigan LLC. Uh, check them out on the web at www.costiganllc.com. And look for more podcasts and video FAQs from CAI coming soon. As always, check our website at www.cai-padelval.com.
www.ghostbusters.org for upcoming events, news, and other information. Thank you for joining us, and have a great day.